Morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you today. Today, we are continuing this series we've been in for a few weeks now called The God Questions. And in this series, we're, we're asking the really big questions that people tend to wrestle with at different points in their life. I think everybody asks these questions, things like, is there a God? If there is a God, why do, do all these bad things in the world happen? What happens when I die? Like, these really big questions that weigh on us and have big impact on how we live our lives. And today, the question that we're wrestling with is one that's going to force us to confront probably one of the great misunderstandings in our culture in particular. We're asking the question, do all roads lead to heaven? You see, we live in a culture that cherishes inclusivity. We don't want anybody to feel excluded. We don't want anybody to feel marginalized. We don't want somebody's sincerely held beliefs or values or sincerely offered efforts to go in vain. And so whenever there's this tension of truth versus falsehood, oftentimes we take a kind of a dialectical approach and we choose the path of least offense, saying, well, you know, they're all basically the same. You know, all roads, all religious beliefs, all philosophical views, they all pretty much are the same. They all teach the same stuff. They all lead to the same place. But do they? That's a really, really important question because if they don't, and we're claiming they do, then we're misleading both ourselves and others towards potentially dire consequences. So this is a really important question that we're tackling this morning. Now, in the past couple of sermons in this series, I've been very upfront with you saying, I can't give you a complete answer in 30 minutes. The questions are just too big. This question is different because I can offer you a complete answer in about 35, maybe 40 minutes, depending on how windy I get, if you'll bear with me. But there is an objective answer to this question. So we're going to dive right in this morning with that question, do all roads lead to heaven? And before we can answer that, we really need to understand what are the different roads available to us today in this world? What are these different religious views? What are these different philosophical viewpoints and thoughts? And so we're going to start off by sampling today's major religions, just in real quick snapshot uh, format. This is going to be a lot of information somewhat quickly, but we're going to digest the world's major religions. I can't hit all of the religions this morning uh, because there's just way too many of them, but frankly, we don't need to. What we're going to cover this morning covers somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of the global population as far as religious beliefs are concerned. So we're going to start off with the most widely held and practiced religious system on earth today, our own, Christianity. Today, there are roughly 2.4 billion followers of Christianity in this world. And Christianity is named after its founder, Jesus Christ. Christ, Christian, you can see where that comes from. And Christianity holds a monotheistic view of God, meaning that there is only one God, mono one. So there's one God. And the way that we get to know this one God in the system of Christianity is kind of unique in the religious landscapes available to us today on earth. What we get to know from the scriptures and from the testimony of the church throughout history is that to know God is not really about what we do. It's not about performing rituals. It's not about adhering to specific codes or practicing certain principles. Knowing God really comes through the efforts of somebody else, of Jesus Christ. We believe as Christians that Jesus came into this world as God in flesh and that he died on the cross for the sake of our sins, to atone for our wrongs. You see, in Christianity, we believe that every human being, through our choices, whether willingly, unwillingly, knowing, or unbeknownst to us, we have separated ourselves from God by rebelling against both Him, His will, and desire for our lives, for the purpose that we were created for and the goodness He designed us with. We've rebelled against that and caused distance. 
But Jesus bridges that distance through the cross in his sacrifice. You see, he's the one guy who actually did not distance himself from God. He actually lived in perfect union with God on earth. And when he died, God made a very special offer to us. He said, if you will place your faith, your trust, and your life in the work of my son Christ, I'll take your sin and I'll give you in exchange his righteousness, his innocence. That's the atonement that we talk about in Christianity. And through the work of Jesus, we get to know God. And all the blessings of knowing God become available to us. There's a passage in the book of 1 Peter that really summarizes this very succinctly for us. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's the first half of that verse. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us, to bring you to God. So if we were going to clarify that a little bit more, for Christ, the righteous one, suffered once for sins to bring you, the unrighteous, to God. You can see he's closing that gap. He's doing the work for us. He goes before God on our behalf. It's through him that we can know God. And in knowing God, like I said, we receive all the blessings of belonging to him and becoming part of his family, including heaven, the afterlife. And that's the, the view of the afterlife that Christianity holds and teaches is this idea of heaven. And heaven is described as a place of unspeakable joy where we are in the full presence of God, where we know him fully, and we know ourselves fully. It's a really, really interesting afterlife where there is just this union and this perfect relationship with our creator. Now, the end goal of Christianity is not for us to be disembodied spirits in heaven, Maybe you've seen that in Hallmark cards or in TV shows where like people floating around with pajamas and little golden harps. That's not, that's not the end goal. If we go to the end of the Bible, we read that God's real goal is to have a new creation, a new earth, where we have resurrected bodies. And that new earth is kind of like the earth we live in now, except perfected. It's not touched by selfishness and sin and, and people's rebellion. It's described for us a little bit in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, this is one verse, it's just a snapshot. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It, it's a new kind of existence. And again, at the centerpiece is this relationship where we get to be with God in that face-to-face -face way for all eternity. Heaven is a very unique concept to Christianity, as we're going to find out in just a few minutes. One other unique concept to Christianity is its exclusivity. Jesus says something very interesting in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, meaning God, except through me. He doesn't say he is a way, a possible truth, one of many lives. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and absolutely nobody comes to God except through me. That's a very exclusive statement. And right there in his own words, Jesus is basically saying, all roads cannot lead to heaven because not all roads are compatible with me and what I teach. Nobody gets to God except through me. So in its very nature, Christ, Christianity, this religious system that we adhere to in this room today, most of us, is a very exclusive faith. And that's a turnoff for a lot of people in our world today because, like I said, we are a very inclusive culture and society. And we say, how could, how could there really only be one way to God? That seems so narrow. Don't all roads have some validity to them? Don't all roads, can't, they have to lead to the same place, right? I mean, that just seems fair. 
as we're going to see in just a couple of minutes, these roads are too vastly different for them all to lead to the same place. So that's Christianity in a nutshell. Let's move on to the world's second most adhered to religious faith. Let's look at Islam for a moment. And this figure is a little outdated, but currently there are about 1.8 billion practitioners of Islam on the earth today. Uh, Islam is, was founded rather by a man named Muhammad in the year 610 AD, so 610 years after the birth of Christ. And it was founded when, when he rebelled against these Arabic um, leaders, tribal leaders in his region that were teaching about a polytheistic religion. Now polytheism is many gods, poly, many. And he claimed that he received a revelation from the one true God named Allah, and therefore uh, Islam today is a monotheistic religion as well. Now, Islam is different from Christianity in that knowing God does not happen through the work of somebody else's sacrifice, but rather you get to know God primarily through practicing the five pillars of Islam. And there's more to it than that, but, but the five pillars are a huge part of how we get to know God. And the first of those pillars is something called the Shahada. And the Shahada is basically a confession that says there is no God but Allah and Muhammad his prophet. And you can probably see in that statement that there is a lot of conflict with the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, where he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. Now, in Islam, Jesus does have a very revered place. However, their understanding of him and what happened to him is, is very doctored to suit their narrative. Uh, and there's, that's all we'll say about that. There's a lot more explanation to go into that conversation. But Islam teaches that basically by practicing these five pillars, you get to know God, the first being the shahada. The second is the salat, and that's praying five times a day while facing in the direction of the holy city, Mecca. The third is the zakat, and that's giving to the poor, practicing almsgiving. The fourth, and I never say this one right, I don't know how it's pronounced, the psalm, the S-A-W-M. And this is basically a fast that takes place during the daylight hours of the holy month of Ramadan. You get to eat at night, but all day long while the sun's up, you can't eat anything. And then finally, the last pillar is the Hajj, and that's a pilgrimage that you have to take to the holy city of Mecca. I believe it's at least one time in your life. And by practicing these five pillars, this is how we get to know God. This is how we live faithfully to God. This is how we experience him, him and his blessings. One of those blessings would be the afterlife, which in Islam is called paradise. Now, paradise is kind of like heaven, but a little different, especially if you're a woman. We'll get to that. So if paradise for men in the Quran is described as a place of lush gardens, of a lot of food and banquets, and particularly of interest are many, many virgins that you can be with, we'll say. In fact, the Quran, chapter 55, it says this. It says, Therein are bashful virgins whom neither man nor jinni, and those are like lower spirits, neither man nor jinni will have touched before, Virgins as fair as coral and rubies. So that's what paradise is like for a man. For a woman in Islam, paradise is kind of a mystery, really, because it's never really discussed in the context of women. It's very much a man's world. Outside of bashful virgins or being the wife of a Muslim man, paradise isn't really, not, I won't say it's not offered, but it's not really talked about in the context of women. It's very much a man's afterlife. So that's Islam, just in a nutshell. After Islam, the third most widely practiced, and we'll call it a philosophical view, are the nuns. The N-O-N-E-S, not the N-U-N-S. These aren't penguin ladies. These are people that claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Some of them are atheists that say there's no God, there's no afterlife. 
Some of them are agnostics. They say, we can't know if there's a God or an afterlife. And really, agnosticism is it's kind of a lazy stance, really. i got to credit atheists for at least coming to a conclusion, because you can know something. What's surprising about this group is that of the, the 1.2 billion people that adhere to it, 50% of them are actually theists. And that means that they believe that there is a God, they just don't adhere to any particular religious belief or system. It's kind of this generic God. He's, he's out there, he exists, but that's kind of all I really know or care to know about him. So that's the third largest religious or philosophical system on the earth today. The fourth is Hinduism. Hinduism currently has 1.15 billion adherents, and they are almost all located in the nation of India. Now, there are pockets of Hinduism all over the world, but it's primarily amongst either Indian immigrants or descendants of Indian immigrants. Uh, Hinduism is, is really the national religion of India. And it's very different from any of the other options we've talked about before. Hinduism is what we call a pantheistic faith, meaning that God is in everything and everything is God. Um, it's kind of like the Star Wars version of the Force in some ways. There's this force that binds us all together in the universe, and that is, quote-unquote, God. It's not really a personal force, it's just a force. And all of the matter in the universe is held together by this force and is constantly in this continual cycle of being remade and reborn called the transmigration of souls. And that's kind of the concept of uh, the circle of life in The Lion King in some ways. There's this constant recycling of matter and energy and people, and, and we're just in this big wheel of being remade continually. And if you're a living thing, that transmigration of souls results in something called reincarnation. And what that means is that when you die, you will be remade or reborn into a different form. Now, it might be a higher form. It might be a lower form. That really depends on how much good karma you rack up in your life. Karma is kind of like this, um, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just this cosmic credit, really. If you do good stuff, you get good karma. If you do bad stuff, you get bad karma. And if the good outweighs the bad at the end of all things, then you get born something higher, something better. Now, we today, a brief note about karma. We talk about karma, or we use that word in our culture sometimes, to mean, I did something good, so good's going to come back to me. Or I did something bad, so bad's going to come back to me. That's not really the, the, the karma concept as it's used in Hinduism. And it's not exactly what Jesus talks about either. Sometimes that gets conflated with Jesus' teachings on, on doing good unto others. You know, we should do that because good things come back to us. But that's not why Jesus instructs us to do good things. He, he says, do good unto others as you would have it done unto you. You, you have a dignity in your life. And you want other people to respect and honor that dignity. And so Jesus says, honor that dignity in others. That dignity comes from God. He created them in the image of God. So honor God by doing good unto them. And you've been created in the image of God to do good. So fulfill your created purpose by doing good unto others. It's very different from karma that says, I want to do good so that I get something and I come back as a, a prince rather than a beggar. Karma is an inherently self-centered concept when you get down to it. And it takes about 600,000 lifetimes of reincarnation and being reborn, this is from Hindu scholars, before we reach the highest level of reincarnation. It's called the, the moksha. And moksha, roughly translated, uh, means release. This is the end goal of afterlife 
in the Hindu belief system. It is this release from the physical form entirely where we become one with the universe. And some people hear that and they think, well, that sounds nice. Yeah, that's good. Who doesn't want to be one with the universe? But these people don't really understand what that means. You see, in, in Maksha, your sense of individuality and self-awareness completely disappears. Your individual will, your individuality entirely disappears and disintegrates. You become one of a collective, just this really identityless energy in the universe. You, in fact, cease to be. Now, to me, that sounds terrifying. But in Maksha and this concept in Hinduism, this is the end goal. That's very, very different from the paradise of Quran in which you experience individual pleasures and, and experiences like that and the heaven of Christianity where you have not just some self-awareness but ultimate self-awareness as you live in the presence of God. You can see there's, there's a lot of differences here. Are you with me here this morning? I know I'm going kind of fast. It's a lot of information, but stay with me, okay? I promise we're going someplace and it's worth it. So that's Hinduism in a nutshell. The fifth largest uh, religious or philosophical system in, in the world today is Buddhism. And Buddhism even is, is kind of a catch-all term because there's a lot of offshoots of Buddhism, like Shintoism and, and things that have been influenced by Buddhist thought. But Buddhism is what we're going to talk about. There's 521 million-ish followers of Buddhism today. And Buddhism was founded by a man whose name I cannot pronounce because I'm just a hick from southern Illinois. But eventually he was called the Buddha, so that's what I'm going to call him. And the Buddha actually was from a Hindu family. That's why there's a lot of similarities between Buddhism and Hinduism. He was from a, a high caste Hindu family, meaning he didn't have to slave away making bricks or working the fields. He had some leisure time, and so he spent 40 days meditating under a fig tree. And when he emerged from his meditation, he emerged enlightened with the four noble truths. And they are as follows. First is that suffering is universal. Everybody suffers. The second noble truth, craving, is the root of suffering. So the fact that we want stuff, whether it's stuff we need or stuff we simply desire, that's what creates suffering in our lives. Third noble truth is that the cure for suffering is to eliminate craving. If I could just stop wanting things, I would be free and no longer suffer. And the fourth noble truth is, is that craving is eliminated through the eightfold path. Now, what is the Eightfold Path, you ask? Well, allow me to enlighten you this morning, much like the Buddha, but it's not gonna take 40 days. It'll take two or three minutes. Deal? So the, the Eightfold Path. These are things that you're supposed to do in your life. The first is to have right views. You have to believe the right things. And that basically means the Four Noble Truths. You gotta think that way. He has, it says, have right thought. And that means be continually thinking about separating yourselves from the world and denying yourself physical, physical pleasures. Third is right speech. Don't lie to people. The fourth is right behavior. Don't be a butthead. Fifth, right occupation. Get a job. Don't be a mooch. Sixth is right effort. And this is, you know, up to this point, I'm like, you know what, Buddha, I'm kind of, I'm with you. This all sounds good. But right effort, this is where I start to, to, to get lost a little bit. To have right effort really is to seek after human perfection, both in your physical form and your mental abilities in your moral and ethical lives, seek after and try to attain human perfection. I'm not entirely sure that's possible. In fact, if you adhere to a biblical worldview, that's impossible. Seventh is right contemplation. Be observant of the world around you. And eight is right meditation. Regularly meditate deeply on the four noble truths and on separating yourself from the world around you. 
Now, Buddhism is kind of interesting in that there's not really a huge focus on God or on the afterlife. It's really more about the here and now, becoming one with the universe around you today and being at peace with those around you. So even there in its emphases and its focuses, it's very different from the other religious systems that we've talked about already. Now, outside of this, there's a lot of other religions. Like we said, we could talk about a Chinese traditional religion, which is mainly about honoring your ancestors and living a good life today. Uh, we could talk about a lot of the, the animistic and tribal religions that take place in, mainly in Africa and in Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of those are polytheistic religions where there are many gods, and you honor those gods by making sacrifices and performing rituals, and, and when you die, you go to an afterlife, a spirit world that's kind of like our world, really, not a whole lot different. Um, some, some examples, the happy hunting grounds from Native American religion. Uh, Valhalla from the Viking traditions, um, the Elysian fields from ancient Roman traditions. These are all examples of these kind of tribal or animistic religions, these pagan faiths that have existed for a long, long time. Now, how you get to those afterlifes in those religious is kind of interesting. It's really just about making the gods happy. If you make the right sacrifices, if you do the right rituals, and interestingly enough, you got to make sure that you're, you're not buried without your head. That's kind of a, a odd thing that ties all of these religions together somehow. If you lose your head, you're not going to the Elysian fields. I don't know. But anyway, that's just a sample of the religions that take place in the world today. Now, like I said, that's a lot of information, but this is not every philosophical or religious viewpoint on earth. We can't cover all that, but this is about 95 to 98% of the global population. This covers how they think, how they believe, what they see the world. And as we've seen, these faiths are all very different. So let's make some observations about these faiths right now, these different roads that some people claim are all the same. The first thing I want to point out is every single one of these faiths or, or viewpoints, they assume that they are the correct one. Every one of them. Nobody in, in any of these faiths is going to say, yeah, mine's not right, but I do it anyway. Nobody does that. If you were to say to anybody in any one of these, these groups that your faith or your religion is not the right one, they'd be very offended. There's an element of exclusivity in all of them. If you were to say to a Muslim person that God, that Allah is not the only God, that Muhammad is not his prophet, he's going to be very offended. If you were to say to a Buddhist person that, that the eightfold path is not the way of becoming enlightened and that you cannot become one with the universe, that suffering is not created just through craving, they're going to be, well, they're going to be very nice about it because Buddhist people tend to be pretty chill but they're going to be somewhat offended. If you were to tell somebody who, in China who practices traditional Chinese religion then that their ancestors have no bearing on what happens in their life or the world around them today, they're going to be somewhat offended. The only ex ex exclusion to some of this, exception, that's the word I wanted. I, I stumbled there. I'm rusty. I'm sorry. I've had like five hours of sleep. So the only exclusion or exception to this is maybe the Hindu faith that says if you practice your religion well enough, you might be reincarnated as a lower-tiered or lower-caste Hindu person, a.k.a. the right religion, where you can begin your 600,000 lifetime journey towards moksha. Every single one of these religions claims to be the correct one. There's exclusivity amongst all of them. Sometimes Christians get a bad rap for being too narrow or too exclusive because of what Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. But that same claim is reiterated in every religious viewpoint. Here's the second interesting observation. Despite all claiming to be correct, every major religion that we've talked about this morning has a different roadmap for how to live a good life. 
They're not all teaching the same thing. Sometimes the way to know God and to live right is to practice five pillars. Sometimes it's to walk an eightfold path. Sometimes it's to rack up enough good karma in your life by doing certain things. There are, there are like a list of 10 things in Hinduism that you are supposed to adhere to in virtue and, and value above others. But, but this is all a different system. And there's some similarity. I'll, I'll give you that. Don't steal. That tends to be this commonality between religions. Don't murder people. That tends to be a commonality between religions. But beyond that very surface level reading of these religious viewpoints and practices, there is a world of difference and a world of, of different priorities that they each teach. For example, in Islam, there are two houses that the people of the world belong to. There is the house of Allah, those who practice Islam and adhere to the Quran, and the house of war, those who do not practice Islam and adhere to the Quran. If you live in the house of war, then you live under Sharia law, which is a different set of laws and standards that you as citizens in the world must live by and adhere to. It is a strict code that kind of treats non-Muslims as second-class citizens. Now, if you convert, you'll be brought into the house of Allah where you can live under a little more freedom. But there are two different tiers of society and humanity in that faith. And justice is practiced very differently in that religious system. If you were to practice Hinduism, you would find because of your belief in reincarnation that cattle are very sacred creatures. In India, you may have seen pictures of cattle that have kind of wreaths around their necks, cattle that are being fanned by people, cattle that are walking across streets holding up traffic. That's because cows are very sacred in that country because of this Hindu faith. They are not eaten. They are not abused. They are not you know, shoved into like cattle pens or anything. They're treated very well. Meanwhile, there are millions of impoverished people who live in squalor and who die from starvation in that country because of poverty. And yet cattle are treated better than these human beings, and that's okay. That's justified because of this religious and ethical system, this belief in reincarnation. That is very different from what the Quran teaches, very different from what the Bible teaches, and where Jesus instructs us that all people are created in the image of God, and we should do good unto others because we expect that dignity that God imbued us with to be honored as well. You see, because other people were created in God's image, we have an obligation to be good to them, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their religious viewpoint, regardless of, of who they sleep with, regardless of their skin color. Our job is to treat people with dignity and love. That's very different from either of the religious systems that we've talked about this morning. They do not all have the same roadmap for what a good life is. Neither do they all claim to lead to the same afterlife. In Islam, afterlife is a man's world. I'm sorry, ladies, it just is. There's lots of beautiful women, and that's really the highlight. It's about experiencing the pleasures that we deny ourselves here on earth today. In heaven, the highlight is really about just knowing God and being known by God and being with him. It's about relationship. In Hinduism, it's a 600,000 lifetime journey to literally nothingness. In Buddhism, you don't really care about the afterlife. It's about the here and now. In all these tribal religions, you go to a spirit world that's just like a little different than the world we live in today. They're not the same thing. And none of these religions are claiming to lead to the same place. The only people today that say all religions and all roads lead to the same place and that all roads lead to heaven are people that don't really know anything about any of the systems, including their own. And I want that to sink in for a minute. Because there are some of us in here today that would say, yes, all roads lead to heaven. It's all good. It's all fine. They're all equally valid. They're not. They don't all claim to be. 
None of these religious systems claim to be compatible with any other religious system. So what we've talked about today is some observations. Let's draw some conclusions now, okay? Here's the number one conclusion I want us to walk away with from all this information. It's possible, okay? It's, it's possible. All of the world's religions are wrong. None of them could lead to heaven, all right? That's a possibility. But at most, only one of them can be right. They just don't fit together. There's no two of them that are compatible with each other. They teach different things. They talk about different afterlives. When you get into the theology, they talk about different gods who have different characteristics and different natures. They could all be wrong. But at most, only one of them could be right. So it really doesn't matter how sincerely held somebody's convictions are. It really doesn't matter how fervently they believe. Sincerity does not equate to factuality. There is an objective answer to this question. Sincerity does not equate to factuality. Now, we've been pretty heavy this morning, and I've not given you a lot of breathing room. So I want to I show you kind of a humorous example of what we just said. Sincerity does not equal factuality. Take a look at this clip. I've been pregnant approximately three years, seven months. At age 20, I had my tubes tied, so I would not have children anymore. I actually got pregnant at 40. I was extremely shocked. I'm still in shock. My belly has continued to grow for the three and a half years, but it does grow at super low rates. My breasts are tender. My mood swings are super bad. I could be crying one minute, happy the next. When I go to a doctor, they take a pregnancy test. Of course, it does not show up on either blood or urine. They have also given me ultrasounds. They tell me all of negative. The doctors are wrong. I don't care what medical degree they have. I am 1,000% certain that I am pregnant. I don't know if you heard it because it's a little quiet at the beginning. She claims that she's been pregnant for three and a half years. Now, I've heard of some crazy stuff, okay? And it seemed like three and a half years. We just had a baby. It seemed like forever before that baby got here. But I can promise you it was only nine months. Now, despite medical testing, despite professional opinion, despite sonograms and scientific evidence, despite everything that we would use to verify a pregnancy today, including common sense, this woman is 1,000% sure she's been pregnant for three and a half years. She seems very sincere about that view. But I didn't make it true. Sincerity does not equate to factuality. And what's true in this kind of funny story is true in this very serious conversation about religious roads all leading to heaven. Sincerity does not equate to factuality. They are not all the same. They do not all lead to the same place. They could all be wrong, but only one of them can be right. So which is it? Now, obviously, I'm a little biased. I'm a Christian minister in a Christian church, and so I'm going to tell you with absolute confidence that it is Christianity, that following Jesus is the one path, and that what he says in John 14, 6 is 100% true. I really don't have enough time left this morning to make that case for you sufficiently. So I'm going to give you a couple of resources, and then I am going to talk a little bit more about that. I would encourage you to check out our sermon on the podcast from two weeks ago, entitled, Is the Bible True? 
And I would encourage you to check out our Easter sermon from this past year, April 21st, 2019, on our podcast about the resurrection of Jesus and the historical probability of it being absolutely true. Between those two sources of information, I think that makes a pretty good case for why Christianity is valid. But this morning, I want to give you one third line of argumentation. Christianity is very unique compared to all of the other world religions that we've talked about today. In each and every one of those systems, knowing God and finding the afterlife is entirely up to you. It's about your ability to practice the rituals of the five pillars. It's about your ability to rack up enough good karma in your life. It's about your ability and willingness to walk the eightfold path. It's about your ability to make the right sacrifices and perform the right rituals so that you can please your ancestors or the gods or whatever. In Christianity, the message is very different. You are not enough. You by yourself cannot close this gap that you've created between God and yourself. But the good news of Christianity is this. God did it for you. In fact, God came into this world in flesh, the man Jesus Christ, and he sought after those who had run away. And he laid down his own life to pay for the crimes and the wickedness and the sins of our lives. And he offers us a gift of life, a gift of heaven, a gift of knowing him. Not because he has to or because we've earned it, but simply because he is good. That is unique to the message of Christianity. And to those who choose to believe in the historically verified testimony of many witnesses that have been left behind for us to check out and investigate ourselves, to those who choose to believe that, there is a reward We talk about it in John chapter 12, sorry, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You get to belong to God's family. You get to be with him. You get to experience blessings in this, excuse me, in this life and the next, not because you're good enough, but because he is good enough and he loves you. All you have to do is believe and receive. And that's something that Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, the nuns, tribalism, animism, ancient Chinese religions, or Astrianism, that none of those other religions will offer you or promise you. And so this morning, I want to I make that offer to you. That after hearing this and, and hearing just a snippet of the different roads that are available to us today, if you want to choose the right one, the one that goes through Christ Jesus, the only way to God, the way, the truth, the life. I don't encourage you to take a step. Even if you're kind of on the fence and you're curious about Jesus and about what it means to follow him, you want to learn more, I want you to take this step this morning. There's the connection card on the back of the seat in front of you. I want you to take that card, fill out your name, phone number, and say, I want to choose Christ. And we're going to call you this week. And we're going to talk with you and set up a time to meet with you to answer all your questions and walk down this road with you. Alternatively, if you have the FCC Monmouth app on your mobile device, you can click the Sunday button on the navigation bar, click take a step, say I want to choose Christ, and we'll get in touch with you. We're going to go on that journey with you too. But this morning, I hope and I pray nobody leaves here this morning walking down a road that goes to anywhere else except the one true King, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your kindness and your patience. We oftentimes wander down a lot of different paths in life. 
Sometimes they are different religious roads. Sometimes they're selfish roads. Sometimes they're roads that lead us to dark places. And yet, Father, you patiently wait for us and you call to us to know the truth, to know Christ. We praise you for his grace and his mercy. We praise you for the love that you show us and that you lavish upon us through his sacrifice on the cross. And we lift up your name. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for life. We give you thanks for hope, for joy, for peace and confidence. Father, you are so good. Help us to walk this road with you, to find you at the end of it, to be a part of your family, and to praise you with all that we are. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.